1 Peter 3, this wonderful book. I, I trust that God has been ministering to you, speaking to you, transforming your life. Uh, I know I've been experiencing His grace as we've gone through it, and so we can anticipate Him to continue to do that today as we look at this section, verses 8-12. through 12. So as we prepare to read and to hear His Word preached, let's go before Him because He is the one who is the author of every good thing that we're going to receive today. So we go before Him dependent on Him, expecting Him to work. So Lord, we just thank You for Your Word and we thank You for Your active presence amongst us. Lord, we are not worthy to receive You. And it's only by Your Word, by Your grace, Lord, that we can experience and know You. We thank You so much for Your mercy. And we depend on You, Lord. And and thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your blood and righteousness through which we can come to the Father and enjoy the Spirit and learn from You and be transformed. Lord, You have been so good to us. Thank You for Your Word and its ministry. We ask You, Lord, to speak to us today. We want to hear from You. We want to know You. We want to be changed. We want to live for You. So would You do all these things as we look at Your Word today? We just thank You so much and pray this as Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Verses 8-12 through 12 are tied together with the earlier section where Peter's instructing us on how to live in light of the salvation that Christ has brought to us. And he sums up and starts to move on to... Uh, more specifically, the topic of suffering beyond this. So this is a summary here, starting in verse 8. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 Peter 3, 8-12 with portions from Psalm 34 quoted by Peter. Today's passage is a wonderful answer to the question that really is in every human's heart. The question being, how should I live? How should I behave? How should I conduct myself? Whether someone's conscious of that or not, there's that question. How to live? How to conduct oneself? There are thousands of answers out there and thousands of consequent behaviors that come with how we answer that question. All sorts of things out there, whether they're systematized philosophies of living or just a kind of functional philosophy, everybody has some answer to that question. It might be, I should live to be happy and comfortable. That's a common answer to that question. Matter of fact, in some ways, it's addressed in our founding documents as a country, right? Everyone has the the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of 
happiness. And, and there's an aspect of that that is biblical, but when that is taken away from its proper context, it can become something that really isn't wholesome and helpful. There's the ethic of power as well. Live to make yourself the one who is in control, who has and controls the resources. And if you live for power, then you can have it your way and probably be happy and comfortable as well. There's other things we could look at on the list and add to that list. There's lots of answers to that question. How should we live? But Peter, in this section, gives us an answer. He presents here in these verses, the Christian ethic, the Christian answer, the Christ-centered answer to that question. And it's really the same answer that you'll find elsewhere in Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount speaks of this. Romans 12, the book of Philippians, in many ways, is exploring the answer to this question. They all present the same ethic. You've heard it before. But you know what? We need to hear it again and again and again. We need to constantly hear the call of God to His kingdom ways, to His lifestyle, that we might be reminded of what we're called to. That we might walk in this. That we might run to Him to find the power to live in it. To see our lives conformed to this ethic. Peter basically teaches us here that as people called by God in Christ, we must live to bless others. As people called by God in Christ, we must live to bless others even when cursed. Ever conscious of God who does the same. That we might live, must live to bless others even when they curse. Ever conscious of God who is the same. That we might obtain a blessing. We are to live to bless others that we might obtain a blessing. That's the call of this passage. That's the call of Scripture. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the call here to bless and what that looks like. Let's talk about the, the result of that, of obtaining a blessing. Peter starts in verse 8. says, Finally, all of you, speaking to every believer and summing up this section, finally, all of you, he is bringing these general key truths that apply to every believer. And then he lays out five heart attitudes that we're all called to. Five, five perspectives, five practices that we are all called to. Do you see them in verse 8? If you look at verse 8. The first one is unity of mind. second one is sympathy. Brotherly love. Tender-heartedness or a tender heart. And a humble mind. The call of Peter, the call of God is for every believer to live with these attitudes, these five attitudes. And we find them throughout Scripture. They're not just here in 1 Peter. We find them other places. The phrase, the particular word might be slightly different, but the idea, the attitude is there. These are actually non-negotiable Christian qualities. These are non-negotiable qualities for a Christian and they come from the very heart and mind of Christ Himself. We must take them seriously. We are called to these. And actually, the absence of these qualities over the long haul, consistent absence of these qualities 
is a sign that perhaps Christ does not dwell in you. Because these qualities come from the very heart and nature of God Himself. So these are non-negotiables. These are essential Christian qualities that flow from Christ in us. If we are saved by grace, freely by the work of Christ, not our own, if we placed our faith in Him, then He will live in us and these qualities are to flow. So this is not a suggested list. These are, this is a compulsory list. So let's review them briefly. Unity of mind. Peter calls us to unity of mind. This isn't a call to, to agree on the same things. It's not a call that everybody has to think the same way. Everybody has to have the same opinion about everything. What, what a boring church that would be if we all thought the same thing and had the same opinion. That's not the call. If everybody in our church liked brown or something and everybody liked to wear the same clothes, everybody looked like me, that would be a terrible thing. Uh, we, it, Paul, Peter's not calling us to that sort of unity of mind. It's, a, it's a really a unity of a mindset. It's a particular mindset we're called to. And we can see uh, this further teased out in Philippians 2 where Paul is calling the Philippians to the same thing. I think we have that verse, Brennan, to put up. Philippians 2. Paul is calling the Philippians to the same thing. So listen for the same sort of wording, unity of mind, same mind, oneness of mind in this passage. It says, Paul asks, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. This is the mind, the one mind that He's called us to, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man. Paul isn't telling us to all think that green is the best color and jazz is the coolest music. He's calling us to a unity of mindset that is characterized not by absolute agreement on everything, but by profound agreement on Christ and our call to live for Him and put others first. It's a profound agreement on Christ and the attitude of Christ that must be ours as well. So this unity of mind isn't thinking the same. It's having the same attitude of mind that Christ had. A humble mind. A mind that prefers others ahead of ourselves. A mind that says, I might like green and jazz, but I'm not going to assert my preferences over the body. I'm going to defer my preferences to serve others. My life is about serving and blessing in Christ's name. And just as Christ lowered Himself and emptied Himself of the divine prerogative to have it His way in every way, we are to do the same. That's the unity of mind that he's talking about here. Opinionated, arrogant Christians are living contradictions. Yes, a Christian is to discern and to have an opinion. But an opinionated, arrogant Christian is a living contradiction. There must be a unity of mind. And if we find ourselves in constant conflict, if we find ourselves never able to, to be part of a body perhaps, to defer to others, then we really need to ask ourselves, is there unity of mind in my life? And we have to be careful too because we can disguise it. 
Sometimes we may not find unity because we say, well, they don't believe the right things at that church, or those folks don't believe the right things. And, and yes, indeed, there are some things that are very important to agree on. But there are many things that are secondary and tertiary and so forth that aren't that important. And if we go around trying to have full agreement, that may be a sign that, that there is not unity of mind. We do not have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of the world disguised and spiritualized as seeking doctrinal purity. So somebody who is like that very well may not have the mind of Christ. And if that describes us, then we need to ask the Lord to forgive us and to change us and to learn to defer on the non-essentials that there might be unity in love. To display the same unity of mind as we think like Jesus thought. We're called to this. Sympathy. We are to display sympathy, the next quality. It's, it means, what it means, to, it means really to feel with others. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to mourn with those who mourn. We're to have the, the same, or together share feelings with one another. We're to be sympathetic. Romans 12.15 calls us to do that. We are to live with others in such a way that we feel their pain and celebrate their joy. And I'm so glad that this is a church that I think does this very well. You guys are sympathetic. Um, I see it all over the place. I, as we prayed for, for John, I know we feel the same things to a degree that John is feeling we feel for him. That's godly. That's good. That's appropriate. I see it displayed in many ways. You guys are celebrating with those who are celebrating even when there's a personal cost. I know many of you know that Chris and Kendra Knowles are, will be leaving us in June. Uh, Chris has got an excellent opportunity to serve as a teacher down in Birmingham, Alabama. And, uh, and I've watched people interact with Chris and Kendra and, and watched them celebrate with them, even knowing that there's a cost for us because these guys are dear friends we love and have served us well. But that's exemplifying the sympathy we're called to. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Next quality, brotherly love. This is the heart attitude and action of deep care and affection for one another. Brotherly love. Peter talked about it earlier in the message that Chris preached. We're called to brotherly love. There is one way... There's one way to advertise for a church and to decorate a church that's far better than anything else. It's the, the advertisement, the decoration of brotherly love. Better than ads in the newspaper. Better than a cool website. Better than a pretty white steeple or a beautiful sanctuary. And, and we have these things. But better than all these things is the display of brotherly love. That's what decorates a church. That's what advertises a church to the community. All men will know you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's the best decoration. That's the best ad we could ever have. And I've said this before, but I have seen brotherly love demonstrated here. And I believe, by God's grace, it is our best advertisement. It is our best decoration. And one thing I get to do that many of you don't is I get to 
probably interact with a broader group of the church. I get to talk to our guests. It's a constant comment of our guests that this is a warm and welcoming and loving church. I feel comfortable here. That's because of the brotherly love that is here by God's grace. So thank you guys. Thank you for the brotherly love. Thank you for your love for those that enter here. They know and they see they are attracted to God in our midst, shown through your love. Tenderheartedness is next. This is a key quality. We are to be tender-hearted to one another. It's a, a more literal translation is good intestine, but that doesn't really work in modern culture to say you need to be good intestine. Um, so we use tender-hearted to translate that. We are called to tender-heartedness as, as God's people. Soft in our hearts, responsive, sensitive, caring, tender-hearted versus hard-hearted. That would be the opposite of it, being hard-hearted. We're called to this tender-heartedness. To be a believer is to be tender-hearted. God Himself is tender-hearted. God Himself listens and cares and is compassionate. Look at the life of Christ. Look at His compassion. Look at His care. Look at His patience. Again and again, you see tender-heartedness. And look at all that He went through. Never at any point did He become hard-hearted. But doesn't that happen with us? We can become hard-hearted if we're not careful. Have you seen it happen in your life? This drift towards hard-heartedness? It might just be because you have been tender-hearted and you've given of yourself and somebody has burned you. Somebody who has, has betrayed your trust. You gave them everything you got. You love them. You serve them. You put out your best for them and then they spurned you. And you said, whether it was conscious or not, I'm not going to do that quite that way next time. So the next person down the line, you said, well... I'm only going to give 50%. And there might have been successes along the way, those that, that were impacted by your life. But it's the few failures here and there that mark you more than the others. And maybe the next time you got burned, it said, well, next time I'm going to give even less. And you drifted over time to hard-heartedness. And if you did an honest inventory of your heart right now and thought about perhaps another day and another time, you'd recognize, you know what? I've become hard-hearted. My heart is not as tender as responsive to God and to others. My heart is not the same for the church and what God's doing in and through this church or the church in general. My heart is not the same for the lost. You become hard-hearted. I can do it too. It's not pleasing to God. It's not the nature of God. God Himself is tender-hearted. And that same God who is tender-hearted wants to help you to once again have your heart be tender-hearted. If you turn from Him, if you recognize your need and turn to Him, He will work. And He will restore and refresh you and give you His heart. But you must do the inventory. You must recognize it. And you must call it what it is. It's sin. It's not Christ-likeness. 1 Peter 3.8 is Christ-likeness. We're called to be tender-hearted. We're called to have humility of mind as well. 
Humility of mind. Different than the same mind. This is basically a thinking process that's fundamentally committed to the truth of humility. It's a mind that knows that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. A mind that knows that it's extremely limited and even its best thoughts are only partial and corrupt to some degree. A mind that knows that it is only by grace that we have any good to contribute. A mind that is aware that our perspectives and needs are part of a bigger whole. A mind that's more aware of its own deficiencies than the deficiencies of others. That's all ways to say humility. It's a mind that's committed to the truths of humility. That has a perspective of humility as you relate to others. I only know a little bit. I'm the worst sinner that I know. When I think of my life and I honestly review my life and I look deeply into the core motivations of my sin, it is scarier than anything I see out there. You don't know the hearts of others, but you know your own heart. A humble mind looks at itself first and says, the greatest sinner I know is myself. And my first responsibility is to deal with my own heart, my own need before the Lord. And then I'll take the speck out of my brother's eye. That's humble-mindedness. That's truth. That's what we're called to as God's people. That's what Peter calls us to. Humble-mindedness. These different qualities, these different attitudes, these five, are good just to meditate on and to think about, and to take inventory of our lives with. This is the call. And this call is to produce action in our lives as well. In this whole section as well, we see actions that flow from these attitudes. It's interesting that in, this, in the section, uh, actually Peter goes to Psalm 34. I encourage you to, to look at Psalm 34. Uh, actually, I think that Peter, as he put together Philippians, I mean, First Peter, had Psalm 34 on his mind. In Psalm 34, it's the psalm about David. David is taken, well, he's actually uh, in a city in Philippi, not Philippi, in, uh, in among the, I'm blanking out, Philistines, that's the name. <laughs> Philippi, Philistines, among the Philistines. And he is basically captive in a city as an exile outside of the people of God. And he cries out and God rescues him. And so the psalm is an expression of praise to that and expression of truths. And I believe Peter, as he's seeking to comfort those who are exiles in a foreign land, has Psalm 34 in his heart and mind. And so there's things that flow out throughout 1 Peter from Psalm 34. And in this psalm, we see, uh, we see the different actions that are to flow as well, that f- flow with the attitudes. One of the things is speech. It's interesting how we, the, the good person, the righteous man, the man who lives by faith in the Lord, is to keep his tongue, his or her tongue from evil, lips from speaking deceit. So much of our actions actually are about our speech. Speech matters. And we are called to have this attitude, these five core attitudes, and then to live out actions in, in light of that truth, in light of what's going on in us, and to speak accordingly. And, and it's a whole other message. don't have time for it today, but, but speech matters. We are to refrain from saying anything that would tear down and only use our speech to build up. There should not be any hint of gossip or slander or coarse joking. Recently uh, blogged about uh, a guy named Ray Ortland Jr. who po- did a blog himself on gossip 
excellent. Just check it out. Uh, I just kind of do his stuff. You can look at his site. A wonderful reflection on, on the, the, the horribleness and the destructiveness of gossip. We can let these things slip and, and be walking in these things. And, but, but Peter and God is calling us not to have any hint, not to tolerate these sort of things, but to live out these attitudes in our actions and in our speech and what we do. And he calls us to do this as well always. Even when others speak evil of us. Even when others revile us, we are to bless. Do you see that? In the passage? Do not repay evil for evil, in verse 9, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Isn't that amazing? We are called to do this, to have these attitudes and to bless others always, not just when they're nice to us. We are to be tender-hearted, not just when people are receptive to our love, but when they're unreceptive. Oh! Often that's why we're not, because we forget that. We are called to bless even when others curse us. This is an amazing call. And, and, and a lot of us might just think in our natural state, this is crazy. We are supposed to bless others? Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to bless those that insult me? I'm to be kind to those that are rude to me? Peter probably expects even us to pray for those who are our enemies. That's ridiculous. That's not just, is it? Doesn't your basic instinct cry out for response when you are reviled or insulted or cursed? Just the other night, actually, Friday night, I was... Uh, walking with my son. We walked down to Starbucks, my son Daniel, and it was warm. Um, just walked down there, and they were just walking around the neighborhood getting some father-son time, having a great time. And at four different instances during our walk, someone drove by us and shouted at us from, a, from the passing car. And they were, they were young men, mostly. I don't know, you know, why. You know, I thought maybe it was because of, of our imposing masculinity or something. They felt threatened. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. But uh, four different times. One guy did it twice. He drove past us once and then the other time. And my, in, my, my first instinct was to, to get them back. And, and, I, and, and then I was slightly tempted because I just was not quick enough to be witty enough to say something back, like, you know, nice car loser or something like that. You know, I, I, I was just kind of shocked. Like, I don't, know, I don't know why that doesn't happen normally to me. Um, but... I just recognize this just this impulse to say something back. You're reviling me. I mean, come on, I'm just an innocent Starbucks walker. Why, why are you saying those things to me? I don't even know you. That's what I felt like. First Peter says, bless. Instead of saying, nice car loser, say something like, hey, God loves you. Or hey, hi. Or something like that. I don't know. I, have to, I, I need to prepare ahead of time because otherwise I won't think it up on the spot. I'll think of the wrong thing on the spot. But that's what we're called to. And he's writing this not just to people that are walking to Starbucks and have some young guy in a car drive by and, and call him names. He's writing this to people whose very livelihood and very lives are threatened. And he's saying to them, when reviled, don't revile back. When cursed, don't curse back, but bless. Bless others always. 
And there's a promise here. There's a promise in this text, a wonderful promise. Bless others in this way. Why? That you might obtain a blessing. That you may obtain a blessing. That this is our call. You were called to this. That you may obtain a blessing. You are called. We are called to this. We are called to bless others in these ways, with these attitudes, with these ways of speaking, with these ways of relating, because we have been called to this. Because we belong to Christ. And that is the key context for all this. We belong to Christ. There is an essential context to these, these commands. A context that enhances all these commands, that makes them all possible. God is the context to this command. We have been called in Christ to God. And these commands flow from His very being. Called to Him in Christ means to know God. And this is what God is like. God is one who blesses those who curse. God is one who who gives to those who are His enemies. He causes the rain and the sun to shine on those who are wicked and those who are righteous. Day after day, He returns blessing for curses. In many ways, apart from Christ in our lives, our natural orientation is to live in such a way to curse God. It may not be blatant. It may not be the worst. It could be. But more or less, even our indifference is saying, God, forget it. It's like being at Christmas time and having your parent give you just loads of gifts. And you open all these Christmas gifts and, and they're glorious and they're wonderful. And you just don't say a word. You walk out of the room. Would that not be an insult to our generous parents? That's how we live. Apart from Christ. Every day is an opening of gifts from the Lord. And, and apart from Christ, we just say no. But what does He do? He continues to bless. He's patient. Wanting His kindness to lead us to repentance. That's what He's like. We see it in Scripture. We see it ultimately in Christ Himself and His life and how He lived. And we see it ultimately in Christ's life at the cross. It's really amazing to look at the different statements Christ makes on the cross. So many of them are not about Himself. He's thinking of others. So the Roman soldiers brutally and systematically torture Him, put Him up on the cross. What does Christ say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two thieves on either side. One mocking. Unworthy of His mercy. One says, remember me, O Lord. Have mercy on me. What does Christ say? Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise, thinking of this other man. He's on the cross and his mother's there. And she's a widow and he's the oldest. And she's there with John. What does he say? To John, behold your mother, behold your son. And it says from that day forward, John took care of Mary. He's thinking about his mother on the cross. This is the nature of God Himself. And He calls us to be like Him. That is the root. That is the context. And we, through who He is and what He did on that cross, dying for our sins, Dying for our pride. Dying for the things that we have done to curse Him and to curse others. Paying for that penalty completely. Fulfilling all righteousness. Then rising again on the third day. Now we belong to Him. And we are forgiven. 
And He lives in us by His Spirit. And so we have power. We have His example. And we are called to be like Him with one another and those around us. We are called to this because we belong to Christ. This is who He is. He's given us the power. We're called to inherit this blessing because our gracious God is a rewarder of those who do good. Isn't that amazing? Your ability to do good, if you are a human being, comes from being made by God in His image. Any good that you might do, however tainted it might be or not, is a gift of grace. If you are a believer, the the true ability to love God comes from Him. It's of grace. Yet He rewards us for it. We are called to pursue these things because God wants to bless us. He's a just God. So in this passage in 1 Peter, the quote from Psalm 34 says at the end in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. We are to bless others to obtain a blessing because God is watching. And God is just. And He rewards good deeds. He rewards good behavior done in His name. He rewards that. He listens to our prayers. His eyes are on us. He enjoys that. There's a blessing that we receive from Him. He promises that. He works that blessing. That blessing comes in different forms. Part of that blessing is temporal. It comes in this life. There's a blessing from walking according to these five attitudes, speaking blessing when cursed. There's a blessing that comes in this life. David experienced that blessing when he was delivered from the Philistines. He experienced God's goodness, and so he wrote this psalm that way. There's a temporal blessing that comes from walking in God's ways. As we walk with Him, He provides for us. There's not a guarantee that you will have everything all the time in every way. No, you will not have that necessarily this side of eternity. But, don't go the other way. God pours out blessing day after day. He loves to provide for His children. To give them everything they need, both individually and as His children as a whole walk in His ways, there is a blessing. There is a material blessing that comes from walking in God's ways. It's not guaranteed. It's not always there. But if you look at historically the areas where the Gospel has had effect and people have walked in truth, there tends to be blessing materially. Not guaranteed, not always, but it's there. There is a blessing that comes temporally. But even more significant than any material blessing He might provide is His Blessing that comes relationally. When we walk in these five attitudes in these ways, there is relational blessing. When a family is comprised of people that have brotherly love, humility of mind, oneness of mind, sympathy, tenderheartedness, it's sweet. Is it not? One of the sweetest things we could have in life is to have a family that walks in these things. When a church walks in these things, is it not sweet? Is there not a blessing among God's people? Is not the Gospel decorated and adorned in such a way that there's influence? There's a relational blessing that comes. There is blessing 
from God. God is a God who loves to bless. And He loves to bless as we walk in His ways. It blesses us as individuals, families, as a church. There's clearly temporal blessings to obedience to God. Peter, I believe, has this in mind, but even more so eternal blessings. We inherit in eternal blessings as we walk in these ways. Two different ways to understand this. First is, if you are a believer, if you recognize that you in and of yourself are bankrupt to obey God and to live a truly good and righteous life, if you've turned to Christ as your only hope for forgiveness in life, then you, by virtue of your faith, by virtue of your connectedness to Christ, which is only by faith, all of grace, you will inherit a blessing. But if you are connected to Christ, you experience Him in you. And as a result of Him in you, your life will display these sort of qualities. Without a transformed life, we don't know if we belong to the Lord. A transformed life, a life that exhibits these qualities, is a sign of His presence in us and therefore an indication that we will receive that ultimate blessing from Him. So we are to walk in these things because these are necessary as believers. So there's a blessing that comes for that reason. But also, the quality of our blessing in heaven is affected by our deeds here. How you live here matters for eternity. Now, as a believer, it's by faith, through faith, by grace. But your quality of experience in heaven is very much tied to how you live. There are levels of reward in heaven. Every believer will get the same, will get to be with God without sin with His precious people, uninhibited. The glory of this world is just a taste of everything we'll have there. God will be there. We'll know Him. We'll experience Him. We'll experience Him together. Everyone gets that. But your capacity to to enjoy that, apparently, is graded by how you live here. That's clear in Scripture. The teaching of Scripture is there. So your obedience to Him matters. Maybe, uh, as the bank comes up as we close, maybe a, a short analogy, metaphor would help. Imagine there's two men. They both happen to work for uh, the same company. They both start around the same time. And the company has a wonderful retirement plan. If you are there and you're faithful to do your job, more or less, uh, for 30 years, then you get this retirement. And it's a, good, it's a good retirement plan. They contribute to it. They pay for it. And it's sufficient to live on when you retire at 65 or 70, whatever, whatever age you are when you retire. So there's two men who do that. They both belong to the company. They both put in their years. One man, though, really works hard at his job. He takes his gifts that he's been given and he, he takes steps of growth. He allows himself to be stretched. He, he works hard on the job. He seeks to interact with people. He takes assignments that stretch him and that are maybe difficult and uncomfortable but allow him to get promoted. And he gets promoted more and more. He gets pay increases for his hard work, for his diligence. The other guy doesn't. He kind of puts in the minimum. He's there, yeah, he does his job, but he really doesn't take steps to 
work harder, to take on new opportunities, just kind of gets by on the minimum. Keep from getting fired, but not looking to be stellar in any way. At the end of the 30, 40 years, both these gentlemen are going to inherit a retirement. But the capacity of the man who worked hard to enjoy that reti retirement is greatly increased because his pay level is going to be higher. Because he worked, because he stretched himself, because he got promotions, his capacity is higher. They're both retired. They're both enjoying that season of their life. But, but the man who worked harder has a little more capacity because with the money, perhaps he can buy a house in Florida, a house in, on the Cape. He can, he can fly his grandchildren down to be with him. He can give to his local church. He, can ha he has a greater capacity, in a sense, to enjoy that retirement. Does, does that make sense? In heaven, we all get Jesus. And it's going to be amazing. But the teaching of Scripture is clear that there are blessings that are proportional to how we live now. And so we are called to walk in these things that we might inherit a blessing. I don't know how the Lord's going to do it all. We don't know. And, and the analogy certainly falls short. The ultimate thing isn't to have a house on the Cape or in Florida or anything like that. But, per, but perhaps that has helped you understand the call here to bless. The call here to have these attitudes, these five attitudes, with one another and with all people. To bless in the face of cursing, to not revile when reviled, to live according to our call in Christ for that ultimate blessing, that we might obtain a blessing. We are called to bless that we might receive a blessing. It's what it means to live as a Christian. It's what it means to live like Christ Himself. May each of us hear the Word of God today to believe and obey His Word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank You that this is what You're like. That You are our strength and ability to do this. Thank You for the glorious call of these qualities and this way of living that comes from You. We look to You. We ask You to help us to walk in these things. Help us, Lord, to have one mind to be tender-hearted, sympathetic, to be full of brotherly love, to be humble-minded. Lord, that we might enjoy the blessing of this, that You might be glorified, that Your name might be lifted up. We thank You for Your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll stand as we sing our last song. The song, It Is Well, was written uh, amidst circumstances.